I'm Helen Karakulak. And I'm Alice Murphy, and this is Overworked But Optimistic, the podcast where we address a new topic every fortnight, looking into the various ways it affects us and consider how we can better balance the many things we like and occasionally don't like to juggle. We're all too familiar with being overworked and aiming to be increasingly optimistic. Whether you're studying, working casually, part-time or full-time, pursuing a career in big picture objectives or just trying to make it through the day, this is the podcast for you. This episode is centred around International Women's Day, which falls on the 8th of March each year. It's a global celebration of the social, economic, cultural and political achievements of women past and present. It allows us to look back on how far we've come and how far we've got to go. International Women's Day isn't exclusive to one particular type of woman, or even exclusive to women overall. It belongs to all groups and is a call to action to enable, consider and accelerate equality. So Alice, why do you think International Women's Day is important? I think it's important to recognise that we have come a really long way in terms of equality, both in big things like we can vote and in small everyday things, but it's also important to recognise that there's still a way to go in that. I think a lot of the time some people think that because we can vote equality and everything's all fine and dandy, but in reality... There's still aspects of our everyday lives that are made harder because we're women and International Women's Day draws attention to that. Why do you think International Women's Day is important? I agree with you in some ways that there is still a lot that we have to achieve. I think the reverse when it comes to International Women's Day. I think what's so great about it is that I think a lot of the time, a lot of our media that we're consuming and a lot of what we're seeing in the world is the injustice and is how far we've got to go. So I think it's important to look back on what we've already achieved. And while I do agree, yes, we have the vote, but there is so much more. I think that it's good to reflect and to think about how far we've already come and to think, look at all of these amazing women doing all of these amazing things and appreciate that they've done it. Change has happened And we need to continue along that path that our mothers, grandmothers, sisters, cousins, aunties, women and men that we look up to and have achieved so much already. And how are we going to continue that legacy for the next generation? Yeah, I also think sort of along that same line, it's a good chance to almost thank the people that came before us. So thank the people who fought for the rights that we have and a lot of the time take for granted. Yeah, definitely. Something that I'm really interested in, which you may have noticed from my little introduction, is I really believe that International Women's Day isn't exclusive to one one particular type of woman. And I think a lot of the media that we are consuming, the more conversational media on... When I talk about conversational media, I mean like the Facebook advice groups and (laughs) the Instagram warriors. I think a lot of the conversation is monopolised by white cisgendered women in a position of privilege. I think that a lot of the time when people think about International Women's Day and the women's equality movement and feminism, they think about those cisgendered white privileged women on their computers being little keyboard warriors, fighting back in the comments section, demanding that mangoes be cheaper. (laughs) Like I think that um, sometimes it can be trivialised when you think about the dominating voice that comes from women who already have so much. And I think International Women's Day is a great opportunity to shine the spotlight on women that have come so far having so much less. Yeah, so it's a good chance to both culturally and personally think about your 
feminism and is your feminism intersectional and if it's if your feminism is only benefiting cis rich white women to me that's not what feminism is about so in the vein of exploring various aspects of feminism and understanding that these issues aren't trivial recognizing the complexity and scope of feminism and its many branches of justice and injustice we're continuing our conversation surrounding gender roles this time looking into how they affect us socially and economically we're celebrating international women's day by exploring how we can better be aware of how our world is changing how gender differences still affect us and how to grow as feminists in progress from some female academics. Dr Sanji Pereira is a lecturer at UniSA's Business School and a researcher within the Centre for Workplace Excellence, specialising in demographic diversity and emotions in the workplace. With a Bachelor of Humanities, a PhD in Business and Management and experience as a human resource practitioner, Dr Pereira is joining us today to offer some insight about gendered expectations in the workforce. Thank you for joining us. So I've done a bit of reading of some of the research that you've contributed to, specifically about work-life practices and women in management. And in a 2016 article in the Leadership Quarterly, which was titled Help or Hindrance, Work-Life Practices and Women in Management, yourself and your colleagues hypothesised that the impact of work-life practices will be most evident when the workforce gender composition makes gender stereotypes less prominent. So from this, I have a couple of questions for you. First of all, can you please give us a brief explanation of what workforce gender composition actually means? It means the number of women as a proportion of the total number of employees. And usually we can look at this at different levels. So in this instance, we looked at total number of women in, in the workforce as a proportion of the total number of employees employed at a particular organization. Found that, as you suggested, the most impact the work-life practices had were when organizations had a high number of women in their workforce. Okay, great. So across your research since you finished university and even since that article was published in 2016, have you seen those Mm -hmm. gender stereotypes becoming less prominent? Yes and no. Stereotypes in the workplace are based on societal stereotypes. Right, it's based on how we perceive things, how we socialize. Stereotypes do change, but they are unlikely to fully change very quickly. So, you know, from 2016 to now, about four years. Having said that, I do see very encouraging signs. You know, for example, campaigns to reduce domestic violence in the workplace. Um, you know, and in the and you know how the impact that has in the workplace. It's a strong campaign to increase the number of women in uh, in science and technology, the same kind of occupation. Campaigns to increase um, and support female participation in male-dominated kind of sports. So I do see very encouraging signs that stereotypes are moving, moving and changing. Whether they have, you know, fully changed, probably too early to comment. I think, but I'm hopeful for the future. We're very hopeful too. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, can you give us a bit of an overview about your studies regarding emotions at work? Well, my work on emotions at work was mostly done as part of my PhD, and there I had very little focus on gender. So I looked at um, how employees, and this is particularly in relation to customer service employees, how do they learn to express certain emotions that are required that are as part of your job. So some research in this space talk about this idea of emotion work. So if you worked in hospitality, for example, or uh, in a call center, any kind of customer-facing or customer-interacting role, 
you're expected to display certain emotions that are sanctioned almost by the organization. It's supposed to come across as caring. If you're a nurse, you're supposed to come across as helpful if you're a customer service person. I examine how do employees who join new workplaces in the service industry, with a particular focus at hospitality, how do they learn to express these emotions? And what I found is that when employees gain competence in emotion work, felt a sense of pride in being able to perform emotion work. So when you're studying emotions at work, how much of your studies is affected by the gender of those that you're looking into? Yeah. When I did my PhD, I actually did not have much of a gender lens at all, um, which is unfortunate in retrospect because I was more interested in, in how, you know, how employees gain competence in work. Having said that, though, Professor Carol Kulik and I supervised a PhD student who, at the moment, she looks at um, gender differences. So her focus is how employees react when managers use emotion expressions to achieve changes in the workplace. So, you know, do we react the, the same when it comes anger expressed by a female manager to compare to a male manager? So I think it'd be really exciting to read her findings. Having said that, previous research to some extent, document that these gender stereotypes or gen- norms we have about our managers do translate to to this space in the sense that you know uh, women are expected to be warm and caring, and they there is a backlash when they express negative emotions like anger. A female managers who express anger are seen by in experimental studies um, are rated as having less competence than men, for example. Well, as students ourselves, we're really interested in the differences between a student environment in university and the workforces we'll soon be entering and how we express our our emotions and the way that we interact with one another in sort of the more sheltered environment of uni versus how our emotions will be critiqued and criticised in job interviews and in the workplace. So one statistic that we looked into was that as of August last year, the Australian government's higher education enrolments and graduate labour market stats indicated that women represented 58.4% of students in higher education and outnumbered men in higher education completion. So with this Mm -hmm. being the case and taking into account the way that we express ourselves why do you think that universities create a more secure, diverse environment for women to be more comfortable with their emotions than most workplaces? I think because universities have that um, almost a pastoral care kind of um, angle, right, um, and therefore do provide a more secure environment compared to the workplace. Having said that, you know, as I said, gender, gender stereotypes are based on societal norms. So they Sometimes some research suggests that societal gen- norm, gender norms do get played out in the classroom. So, for example, male students are more likely to ask questions uh, and male students are more likely to dominate classroom discussions and so on. But um, And when I teach, I often find when I have mixed gender groups um, and I, you know, I've, got, I've got group discussions going and somebody has to scribe or write down the group decision points, it all, often it's the woman who does the scribing, so I kind of raise this as a as an issue. But that's a small trivial example. But I think the universities in this space are being quite proactive, really being reflective 
and looking at their own practices, looking at the research evidence and looking at their own practices and doing almost an audit of that, which is excellent. Um, and I can give you a great example from UNESCO. UNESCO participated in um, in the SAGE initiative um, where universities get accredited based on what actions they're taking in, to, in order to support women in, in sciences. Carol Kulik and Dr. Jill Gould are rolling out this uh, program for small steps um, at UNESA, really getting all of us um, who deal with students to look at how we interact with students, how we do our marking, how we do run our courses, to see uh, what small steps, so what, what small initiatives we can take, anybody, anywhere can take in order to ensure gender equality in the workplace. So it's, it's, it's good news. Yeah, that sounds really interesting and I think it would be a great resource for us as students as well as obviously having that go through the university and seeing that be implemented. Mm-hmm. We've done quite a bit of study into demographic diversity as well and we're interested as well as looking from a gendered perspective but also if that differs based on generational or ethnic or racial or cultural differences, whether the way that we interact with each other in university or in the workplace how that can affect our interactions as well. Mm. So my research has been mostly around gender and age. My, I haven't directly done any research on ethnicity or racial or um, any other cultural differences. Um, so, so research on age, for example, suggests that organisations can create age-friendly workplaces so that stereotypes um, don't get played out as strongly. So... So to give you an example, they you know often we have these stereotypes about older people. You know, older people are grumpy. They're not very creative, and they are resistant to change. And you know, there's a fairly strong body of research that suggests that actually happen in the workplace. Um, there is also research around um, this idea of contact. Um, you know, um, is when people from different different backgrounds, different ethnic, racial, age backgrounds, um, ages come together, they're more likely to be to be able to see the grey as opposed to black and white. So they're more likely to be able to say that disconfirm their stereotypes. So they're more likely to say, oh, you know, not all older people are grumpy or, you know, kind of maybe older people are not that grumpy. Um, you know, they can be positive and creative and energetic. Interacting with people who are different probably is, is important in terms of um, how we learn about the others and how then we, we are comfortable with each other in the workplace or at university. Yeah, definitely. And that interaction with people of different uh, ages would contribute to helping us unlearn some of those stereotypes as well. Because I think when we think about our generation versus our mothers or our grandmothers, we think about the way we are able to express ourselves now is probably very different to the way they could so many years ago. Absolutely. So finally, what advice can you leave us with for both men and women to improve gender equality in our own lives and to contribute to better working environments that we'll soon be entering? Um, I think at an individual level, awareness is probably the first step. And often, particularly in a decision-making role, being vigilant about how you make evaluative decisions. So sometimes we use stereotypes that shortcut in our decision-making, but I think they are particularly relevant when you make evaluative decisions like promotion decisions, recruitment decisions, who, who we you know, would like to invite 
for a high visibility project or, or a task. And then really reflecting and thinking about would I have decided or reacted the same way if this was a man as opposed to a woman or, or you know, or vice versa. Just kind of really being vigilant to see how much gender influences or stereotypes related to gender influence that decision making. Finally, I think if you're in a position of power, do adopt evidence-based workplace practices that, you know, like work-life practices that will support gender equality. And if you're not in a position of power, you can endorse or you can lobby for them in your workplace. Evidence that suggests that workplace that's a workplace that supports gender equality is a workplace that's good for all of us. So it's good for men, it's good for women to have good work-life practices. And also it's often good for other minority groups. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today and for sharing your knowledge and advice with us. We really appreciate you taking the time to chat. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. I look forward to listening to your podcast. Thank you so much. Professor Sharp is a member and a past director of the Research Centre for Gender Studies, which is a key concentration in the Hawke Research Institute of UniSA. Her work on gender, government policies and budgets began in the mid-1980s. With over 25 years of experience, she has researched, written and worked with governments, non-profits and international organisations to integrate a gendered perspective into economic and social policy. Thank you for joining us today. Good to be here. You have a wealth of experience <coughs> contributing to change within how we view economics and government practices through a feminist lens. So do you believe that we're seeing the most informed implementation of gender equality commitments from government officials and international agencies at the moment than we have before? Well, there's certainly a lot more visibility around the idea of gender equality and that um, governments and various organisations have to do their bit to um, um, make our world more gender equal. And there's also a lot more attention given to the economic benefits of doing that as well as the equity benefits. But I think, as do many commentators, there's a world of difference between a policy commitment and its implementation. And where we're falling short, whilst governments of all persuasions are very happy to make promises as is big internationalised uh, international organisations like the World Bank and the UN and the IMF and so on, the promise or the commitment to gender equality is not followed up by consistent action. There's many reasons for this, like political commitment certainly waxes and wanes. You need resources to bring about those sorts of structural changes and the resources don't always follow. And there's resistance. There, there are groups that either actively or passively resist gender equality. Also, we shouldn't forget that context is very important to now context of economic policies over the past 30 years. We use the term neoliberalism, and that's a policy ideology and practice that um, gives a lot of emphasis to individualism and the notion that, um, you know, we should be providing um, for ourselves as individuals, there should be user pays and no sort of social subsidies and planning. And that context 
has not been friendly impact as to the practical implementation of gender equality on many occasions. So do you believe that there was a time where actions to encourage gender-aware commitments and the implementation of those commitments have peaked? Do you think that we're seeing a consistent rise in governments and uh, non-profit or international organisations' strategy to improve their stance on certain gender-based policy? I think there was a big surge probably in the 80s and 90s for those actions before neoliberalism took hold of the world. But I'm not sure it's very useful to talk about the notion of peaking. I think when you've got a major structural issue, change occurs in sort of, it comes and goes. There's surges and there's pullbacks and so on. And also change in different historical epochs occurs around particular topics like this year we're celebrating 125 years of the women's vote in South Australia being the first state and government to implement universal suffrage for women, although that wasn't quite universal back then. Now, now that was seen as the big thing that was needed for gender equality 125 years ago. But they soon found out that that in itself was not enough. So then the topic shifts on to something else. Like these days, we hear a lot around the, um, the need to do good work around preventing domestic violence. We hear a lot from the Me Too movement. We hear about the gender pay gap, the sharing of paid and unpaid work amongst women and men, the need for childcare and so on. So the, the topics today are even different to what the prominent topics were in the 80s and 90s where we were arguing for big changes. In fact, we started arguing back in the 70s for paid parental leave. It just took a a long time to get here in Australia. And and before that, there were different um, topics. So gender inequality being so structurally embedded in our social and economic and political systems, it isn't going to emerge overnight. Yeah, that's a very good point and something definitely for us to keep in mind. So Helen and I are both uni students who will both be going into the workforce in a scaringly short amount of time. So can you provide an example of how gendered economic structures are affecting young people who are new to the workforce? When we talk about gendered economic structures, we we need to keep in mind that there's two spheres to the economy. Some people only focus on the paid sphere of the economy, but we also produce a lot of goods and services in the unpaid sphere as well. Men tend to fare better in the paid sphere. They spend longer there over their lifetimes and reap the benefits of that. And women do more of the unpaid work. Now, as young women, you're entering out of the unpaid sphere where you and your male counterparts have been beneficiaries of lots of unpaid goods and services to bring you up and to make you employment ready at this point. This is what we talk about as the process of social reproduction. And over 60% of 
that work tends to be done by women, which then has repercussions on their paid workforce activity. So you you will go out and hopefully get a good job, but if you look at the data, you will find that young women graduates on average will earn less than young male graduates. And but and over a lifetime this will add up to being significant. Whilst there's more women at university, we're getting really good retention rate, young men and women going to the end of the high school, the return that women are getting is not equivalent to the returns that men are getting from their extra education. So I'll leave it there. But that's some of the things that we need to think more carefully about. Yeah, that's definitely something to to consider. And those statistics are not very encouraging, (laughs) but um, there's something that we need to be aware of and hopefully we'll start to see change in those areas soon. And following on from that, what do you think is the biggest or most harmful myth or misleading piece of information regarding women in economics? Well, I I think... Um, in very broad terms, one of the, the big problems that I've always grappled with and, and others when we're arguing about the significance of gender equality is that there is a pervasive assumption amongst everybody, basically, whether it's individuals or corporations or governments or international organisations, is that policies are gender neutral. And they sort of see it as an act of good intentions, you know, if you say, what's the gender impact of your policy on some workplace change? People say, oh, we don't devise policy to discriminate against men or women. So they see that the notion of being aware of the gender impact is counter to this sort of idea that they're they're being neutral in their policy approach. And half the time, we don't know what the evidence is. We don't know what the impacts of our policies are. It, It is interesting, though, often and more so, gender is used as a rationale for policy, but not followed through as to whether it delivers the right impact. You know, the truth of the matter is, we would have to all occupy the same position and hold the same gender norm for something to be neutral. And we don't. We occupy very different social and economic positions. And so different groups of men and women and non-gender specific people are impacted very differently by the same policy. So we need an attitude of examining the evidence and following through. Because the follow-through is what matters at the end of the day. The intention isn't so much enough when you're not recognising the inherent differences that are preventing you from being neutral. It's not enough to just try to be. Yes, and there's a lot of glossing over all that because it's a bit like the debate with any major structural issue like climate change. Like There's a lot of misinformation, glossing over. Some of it's quite intentional because the change is not wanted, but other stuff is unintentional, just hasn't occurred that these things are important and if you want good policy, you have to follow through. 
Yeah, because the complexity is there and you That's just need right. to assess it. So mm. another topic that you're currently immersed in is gender related to superannuation. As young people doing a lot of casual and part-time work and eventually going into careers that hopefully will last long term, why should we be conscious of superannuation and the effect that it has on our future? Well, the the reason you have to think of the future and, you know, economists have known for a long time that people aren't very good about um, thinking in the long term. We prefer the short term because... Um, it's more digestible. Uh, we, it's more digestible. We have more information about it. We don't know how long we're going to live. Um, even when you get to retire, you've still got the problem. How long am I going to live? How do I spread the money? But what's happened with the, the sort of policy framework and the ideology of neoliberalism is that there's now a huge emphasis on self-provision. So, so this policy framework that's operated across the world is increasingly meant that individuals have to save for the retirement. And particularly with increasing longevity, you can be in retirement. Um, for 30 years or more and who knows by the time this generation of young people um, retire if there's such a thing. So this puts you in a difficult situation because work is becoming more insecure, more part-time, you're having to be portfolio workers, not to mention the news that keeps appearing on the basis that big employers are underpaying people. They're not following the law with respect to wages. And sometimes they mention it, but they're not paying the proper wages. They're not paying the proper superannuation. In Australia, we have a system where um, if you earn a certain amount each month, the employer is supposed to put in 9.5% of your wage. But they can organise it so that you don't earn that much with any one employer per month so they don't have to put in or they just don't follow the law and put it in anyway. You have to say things are difficult for increasing numbers of young people to have the type of job that facilitates that. You know, this is a debate that's going on at the moment. We're having an inquiry into um, retirement income. And um, the, these things are up for debate, but young people have to be in there, in that debate. Yeah, definitely. I think it's something that we should be aware of because it will be affecting us in a few short years before, like you said, hitting 30 and trying to decide what path we want to take and how that's going to affect our employment. But also yeah. thinking about it in terms of how it affects our parents, our grandparents, and just being aware that it's an issue that will affect us, but more importantly, is affecting other people that we care about now. Yeah, there, there is some interesting experiments going on. For example, consultancy firm that um, intensively studies superannuation and puts out reports, including reports on the gender differences. They're paying their women workers 2% more because all their research shows what a care penalty women pay over their lifetime, the the gender pay gap, which is still around 15%, and so on. There, there are ways in which to deal with this while we're in this position of inequality. It is also true that high-income women, whether you're young or old, are now the gap between 
low-income women and high-income women is now emerging as a significant issue because there's enormous tax benefits um, given in superannuation to people in high-income groups and very few in low-income groups. So that sort of difference is also emerging. Yeah, this is definitely making me realise how soon I actually have to start thinking very seriously about my long-term future. You've got to also think of the short term. <laughs> so that's a difficult trade-off. Yeah, balancing all that in your brain can be quite the challenge. <laughs> okay. Um, before we finish up, what advice can you leave with us for young men and women entering the workforce that are navigating the gendered economic structures affecting their day-to-day lives? Well, I think the question we have to ask here is where does change around work issues and home issues come? You know, what what are the forces for change? Obviously, good government policy and leadership is very important that they devise policies actually um, anticipating what they want, what outcomes they want, and following through to assess the impacts and making changes. That's all part of it, and. Many of us have been involved in trying to make that happen and my work with a large number of international colleagues have been saying, well, policy is not just a statement, it's how many resources, what's the budget. Working with governments and other groups to make their budgets more gender sensitive. Trade unions, employers don't say getting involved, being a member of a trade union is a start, they're probably your only security if anything goes wrong, but actually getting involved in the work um, because it is the members that are the trade unions. And my, my own experience is, you know, trade unions were very significant in the early establishment of the superannuation framework that we have today. And it could have been a lot worse with our involvement of groups like women in trade unions where we fought for um, provisions that just weren't there beforehand. The personal is political, you know, at a personal level we have to make changes in our own practices and also argue for changes in our personal relationships. Our own mindsets are very important unless people change their headset about things it's very difficult to bring in um, progressive changes. Yeah, absolutely. And you've definitely given us a lot to think about. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you very much. And yeah, this is um, good work. So keep it up. Thank you so much. That's it for this week's episode of Overworked but Optimistic. Make sure you tune in next time for our next episode. Uh, In the meantime, you can keep up to date with us on our social media at of but op spelled O V B U T O P on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.